It's a beautiful day. And next week, don't come, because it's spring break. So thank you for coming today in what feels like spring break, but next week is spring break. And so um, we will not be meeting next week, but we'll see you the first week of April, and we'll be on lesson 19 at that time. So we're getting close to the end. There's only 23 lessons, so can you believe it? Early in May, we'll be wrapping up this epic year in the Pentateuch. You know, many people, when they think about this land that God has called the Israelites to, they think about that that as being a picture of heaven. And so oftentimes when people study the Pentateuch and they think about the land of Canaan, the promised land, they tend to think of their own lives as sort of that journey through the wilderness and then heaven is the promised land. But that's actually not the best way to think about the promised land because really in the promised land there are wars to be fought. There's, there are battles waiting for the people there. It's not a land where there's no more tears and no more sorrow and no more pain. It's a land fraught with difficulty, even though it is the promised land. The better way to think about the promised land is to think of it as a spiritual inheritance. It's the inheritance that God is providing for his people. It's a place where God calls his people to go, to occupy, to dwell, to work, to serve, to care for each other. It's an inheritance that God has provided for his people. And God, we know, has a, has a perfect plan for each one of our lives. And he gives us opportunities to enter into those, that plan. God places a call upon our lives. He leads us in our lives. He invites us into his plan. But we all have an opportunity to respond to his calling, to actually physically step into the places that he prepares for us. And that only happens really by faith and obedience. It only happens as we trust God's plan, as we trust his calling, as we trust his word. We step in by faith and obedience. So just like the Israelites who we're watching them go through really an epic journey to the promised land that's fraught with difficulty. It's fleshing out all of the um, mistrust and impurities of their own souls. But just like them, we also are challenged to walk through our earthly journey by faith and not by sight. If we choose to walk by sight, not by faith, we actually will miss out on so many of the blessings that God has for us. God is constantly calling us to hear his word, to trust in his character, to step out in faith, and to move into the places that he's calling us into where we actually can't evaluate them only based on what we see. We have to evaluate them based on what we know to be true about God and his word. And we know that God is lavish and how he blesses his children and he has planned good things for our lives. I love Psalm 16.6. It's been one of my favorite verses that I've been praying through a lot lately personally. And it's the psalm that says, The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I was thinking of a story that I heard one time about um, a mom and her son. And they went into the store, their favorite sort of uh, small town store. And the store owner presented the little boy with this big jar full of candy and said to him, here, reach in and take a handful of some candy. And the little boy stepped back and he acted quite shy. And so the storekeeper sort of was perplexed and he said, well, let me just grab a handful for you. So he grabbed a handful and gave it to the little boy. And when the little boy and his mother were outside on the sidewalk, she said, 
what happened? That was so uncharacteristic of you not to take the candy that the storekeeper was offering you. And he looked at his mom and he said, oh, but mom, his hands are much bigger than mine. (laughs) And isn't that the same for us? God's hands are much bigger than ours and his plans are much better than ours. And what a wise little boy who received the greater gift from the bigger hands, right? So my question before we launch into this lesson this morning is to ask you to think about in what area of your life do you feel that God is asking you to step out in faith? Will you think about that for a minute? Maybe it's in how you serve him with your time. Maybe it's in how you trust him with your money. Maybe it's in how you use your talents, your experiences. Maybe God is asking you to go back to school or to say yes to a leadership opportunity in ministry, to serve him in some new way. Maybe someone in need has come into your life and God is prompting you to provide love and care for that person. Maybe God is asking you to love your husband more sacrificially and unconditionally. Maybe God is prompting you to go back into the job market. Maybe he's stirring in you a desire to give up a bad habit or to trust him in your place of greatest fear and anxiety. If something's come to your mind, would you just write a word down on your paper, just capture one word, what that might be? It could be that God is calling you to step into actually a new place. So maybe there's a new job for you. Hopefully there's one for my husband. (laughs) Maybe there is a new home or a new community that he's asking you to move into. A new ministry. Maybe there's a place of greater surrender in your own heart that you need to make to the Lord, a physical change of location, or even could it be that there's a new relationship, a new friendship, a new, a new land of relationship that God is calling you to enter into? Have you ever felt God nudging you forward and at the same time you seize up and dig in your heels? Have you ever felt that tension I think of when I take my dog for a walk, if they don't want to go somewhere, it's like, yeah, they want to go for a walk, but they just dig in with all their heels. They don't want to move. Maybe you're in that season where you feel God leading you, but you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. Or maybe you're bargaining with God and you're telling him, well, later I'll do that. When God first asked me to teach the Bible in BSF, I told him, I'll do that when I'm 50. And I was only 42 at the time. I said, when my kids grow up, when they launch out, when they're on their own, when I'm not busy at home. That was not what God had planned for me, but I bargained with him for a while over it. You know, it's a dangerous thing to trifle with the will of God. You and I have to choose to obey by faith and not by sight. And that's what we're going to learn today as we look at the Israelites struggling to go into the promised land, the land that God has promised to give to them. What we're going to learn today is that frightening situations are opportunities to trust God and experience his power and faithfulness. Frightening situations are opportunities to trust God and experience his power and faithfulness. So we're going to look at this lesson. I'm only going to go over two of the five chapters we looked at this week. So I'm going to go over 13 and 14. I wish I could do the rest because I love the story of Korah, but I felt like the richest nuggets of application are in these first two chapters. And this is the pivotal turning point for the Israelites. If we don't understand why they were destined now to spend 40 years in the desert, it's going to change how we understand who God is and what the consequences of their sin really meant. So first we're going to look at the reports in chapter 13 of Numbers. 
The people hear mixed reports about Canaan from the 12 spies. Then we're going to look in Numbers 14, 1 through 19. We're going to see their rebellion. The people rebel against God's word and they refuse to enter Canaan. And then in Numbers 14, 20 through 45, we're going to see the repercussions where God judges Israel's rebellion and sentences them to 40 years of wilderness wandering. If you have a Bible and you can open it up to Numbers 13, it will really help as we go along because I can't put all of the verses up on the screen for you to see. But we're going to start by looking at Numbers 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So God's purpose, actually, in delivering his people from slavery and captivity in Egypt is not only to establish them as their own nation, to become the nation of Israel, but it is to give them this land, their own land to dwell in, the land of Canaan. The Lord had promised this land from back in Genesis when he made promises to Abraham. Um, he, one of the promises was, I'm going to give your people a land to dwell in, Genesis 12. And that promise was transferred from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And all through the years, the people of Israel have heard these promises reiterated over and over again. Even in our study, as we've been in it this year, we've heard over and over again, God reiterating his promise that he's going to bring his people into this land that he has promised them. He had already told them everything they needed to know about the land. He told them the land was already occupied with people. He told them that they were going to have battles when they went in, but don't worry, he was going to defeat their enemies. And so they were already organized, as we saw a couple weeks ago, into, into fighting soldiers in formation, ready to go, take the land. They were strategized, they had a strategy and they were prepared to fight and to battle their enemies with God's power behind them. Now we find they're camped just on the border, so they're just over the line. We can see in the map, um, they're just over the line of the promised land. And um, God has told them everything they need to know. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you see where it says the 12 spies up there? That's where they're camped. Just over the line is the land that God has promised them. He has also promised to go with them. So if, if you think about this for just a moment, if God has told them what to expect, showed them where the land is, promised milk and honey, told them that they would have victory over their enemies, why do they need to send spies? They already know everything they need to know, Right? Well, actually, when we fast forward to Deuteronomy, we find out why they sent spies. Now, we're going to study the book of Deuteronomy after spring break, but one thing you need to know about Deuteronomy is that it is actually kind of Moses' diary, his kind of personal diary about all that happened in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So it's kind of his personal reflection. So as we go to Deuteronomy 1, verses 19 through 23, Moses tells us how the spies came to be. He says, then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us, that they might explore the land for us, and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up, and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me. I took twelve men from you, one from each tribe. 
So you see, it seems like the sending of the spies was actually a concession to the Israelites because they feared. They wanted to go and send men men out first to see if the land was safe for them to enter. They were not really willing at that moment to walk by faith. They still wanted to walk by sight. Now, because God had promised victory to them, all they really need to do was trust and obey. God had already promised victory. Instead, they doubted, and they wanted to see for themselves whether God's promises were true with their own eyes. So Moses chooses one man from each of the 12 tribes, 12 men, and we we know these weren't the oldest and wisest leaders. These were young men. They were men who were energetic, and they were physically fit. They had to travel by foot 500 miles to go um, through the landscape over the next 40 days. And here we're introduced to Caleb in verse 13.6. Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. He's the son of Junahea. And for the first time, we get to meet him, but we actually get to know him a lot more through the story. And then in 13.16, we discover that Joshua, who we've previously met, he was a military commander for for Moses and Moses' personal assistant. We find out here that his name was previously known as Hoshea. Numbers 13.16 says that Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Now that's kind of interesting because um, Hoshea means salvation in Hebrew. And so Moses actually changes his names to Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. And then Joshua in Greek is translated Jesus. So interesting how names were so significant and Moses changed his name for a very significant purpose. When we get done with this study this summer, I'm going to challenge you to read the book of Joshua because it's so exciting. Anyway, the mission of these 12 guys was to go in and spy out the land, and they were to see what it looked like, and in particular, they were to bring back some of the fruit. Now, these ripe grapes that they found meant that they most likely were there in the mid-July. That's the time that the grapes would have been the ripest. So it's fully two months now since they left Um, the the wilderness of Sinai. Here's some pictures of the land that they would have gone into to see, imagine how different this looked from the wilderness that they had been camped in for all this time. On their journey, it says that they went through the Negeb, through the hill country. They went through Hebron, which is one of the oldest cities on the planet. And this is the place where God first met with his descendants and told Abraham that they would inherit this land, that this was going to be the land of promise. And so many of the patriarchs are buried in this land. So you can imagine as the spies go into this land, this is the place where their spiritual forefathers have been buried. This is like a museum of their own history. Hebron, though, was a big fortified city, and the people there were known for their height. They were really big people. But can you imagine how luscious the grapes and the figs and the pomegranates would have tasted as they came back to a people who had been stuffed to the gills with manna and quail? Can you imagine how delicious and how tempting the food would be in and of itself to want to go into this land? So the men come back and they report. They say, yes, the land flows with milk and honey, but their cities are fortified and their people are so big. We know that um, Goliath came from these people. So we begin to see some of the attitude that the spies bring back because the first thing that they say in verse 27 is they say, we went to the land to which you sent us. Now they're calling Canaan the land that you sent us. Instead of how they used to call it, they used to call it the land which the Lord swore to give to us. So there's an attitude shift happening here. 
Now, factually, they find the land to be exactly what God said it would be. It does flow with milk and honey, just as he said it would. It is inhabited by the exact tribes of people that he told them would be living there. Everything is the same as as God had told him. But in verse 28, they report that the people there are powerful and the cities are fortified. And they say, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, a really big, scary group of people. Now, 10 of the 12 spies express, they express doubt in God's promises. And their doubt then, of course, we know how that goes. It just quickly spreads throughout the people. So the people become very discouraged. But you know, doubting in God's promises is unbelief. And unbelief is rebellion against God. So in verse 30, Caleb, he quiets the people before Moses and he says, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are able to overcome it. That is a statement of faith. He believes God's word. He's like, let's go. We can occupy it. He's attempting to calm the people. He's reminding them about God's promises to them. But then immediately he's rebuffed by the other 10 spies. And now these men, it says, present a bad report. So a report that is very discouraging and is full of lacking of faith. In verse 31, it says, Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. So the ten spies are giving actually four reasons why they shouldn't occupy the land. The first, he's saying that the people are much, much stronger. Now, realize that this is a community of people who had been slaves. They had never been soldiers. So they probably feel super intimidated by the kinds of battles that they're going to have to fight. They don't really feel equipped for it. And that's right, because they aren't the ones who are going to get the victory. God's going to get the victory. The second thing is they're saying the land is going to devour us. So this kind of land needs a lot of, of cultivation and tilling to think of how difficult it's going to be to raise grapes and to care for trees of fruit. And they're saying the, the amount of work that this land is going to take is going to devour us in and of itself. It's too much for it. It's going to be too stressful. They say the people are like giants and they say we are only like grasshoppers. It's interesting because Thomas Aquinas, who was an Italian Roman Catholic priest, um, he he says this. He says, to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. Isn't that wise? So if they had only looked by faith instead of sight, they would have seen the one true God who is able to conquer every enemy and who actually sees every nation as grasshoppers. Isaiah 40 speaks of this in verse 22. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. To God, we're all grasshoppers. And the truth is that God turns believing grasshoppers into giants. God turns believing grasshoppers into giants. In the early 1900s, there was a really significant college football game. And it was against Notre Dame and USC Trojans. And at that time, Newt uh, 
Newt Rodney, Rockney. Do you know that name? Newt, he's a fame, Newt Rockney, famous, famous college football coach. And he knew that he was the coach for Notre Dame, and he knew that the USC Trojans were a far better team than his. And so he employed one of the most brilliant strategies ever known in football. He actually devised a strategy to intimidate the other team. He went out into South Bend, Indiana, which is where the team was located. He found the biggest, scariest looking men he could find. Each man was over six foot five and over 300 pounds. And he dressed them up in the fighting Irish uniforms. And this was before they actually had um, uh, limited rosters and eligibility requirements. This was before they probably, because of him, put those in place. (laughs) And when it got time for game time, the first guys that came out onto the field was this massive team of giants. And they marched and they stood on the sidelines. Now, not one of those guys played football. They weren't supposed to play. The real team came out and played the game. But when USC saw these giant men standing on the sidelines, they were so intimidated. Though they were undefeated at that point, they were so intimidated that they lost all their confidence and they lost the game. Interesting, huh? Interesting how we can be intimidated just by the size and the scope of people. So let me ask you, what frightening situation are you facing? What in your life looks like a giant? It could be a health crisis. It could be a recent diagnosis. It could be a financial crisis. It could be a concern for a family member or fear of the future. How could you focus on God's power and, and his faithfulness rather than the size of your problem? You know, it's just like those football players. It's like they go out onto the field, they're the better team, but all they can think about is the size of their problem. How are you looking at the size of your problem rather than on the magnitude of God and his faithfulness, his character and his trustworthiness? If you want to know how God turns believing grasshoppers into giants, it happens by faith. You know, you and I will always, we will always, our entire lives, because we live in a broken world, we will always be faced with a series of opportunities that are brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. That's life. That's life in a broken world. And I believe that God actually uses these opportunities to test our faith. Because the more our faith is tested, the more it can be trusted. And the more that God tests our faith, the more we're actually able to grow and to know how much faith we really have in him and how trustworthy he is. But it is, it's, unbelief is a serious thing. And it, because it challenges, it challenges our understanding of God's character and it causes us to rebel against God's will. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So in what area of your life do you need to choose faith in place of doubt? Where are you doubting? And where do you need to replace that with confidence in God's character and belief in his promises? I'm going to share some promises with you today and do not write them down. I promise I will send them to you before the day is over. But I want them just to wash over you, and I just want you to to listen to these promises and think about where is God specifically wanting to encourage your heart today with whatever that thing is that you wrote down at the beginning of the message. God promises an acceptance that can never be questioned, Ephesians 1.6. 
He promises you an inheritance that can never be lost. 1 Peter 1, 3-5. He promises you a deliverance that can never be excelled. 2 Corinthians 1, 10. He promises you a grace that can never be limited. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He promises you a hope that can never be disappointed. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19. He has promised you a bounty that will never be withdrawn. 1 Colossians 3, 21 through 23. He promises you a joy that need never be diminished. John 15, 11. He promises you a nearness to God that can never be reversed. Ephesians 2, 13. And a peace that can never be disturbed. John 14, 27. And a righteousness that can never be tarnished. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And best of all, a salvation that can never be canceled. Hebrews 5, 9. So when you and I, when we look up to God, rather than looking at our circumstances, he gives us the spiritual strength and confidence of a giant. And he gets all the glory all the glory. And he uses grasshoppers to defeat giants. He uses shepherd boys to defeat giants. He uses women like you and me to defeat giants. So will you allow him to take your grasshopper self and transform you into a giant of faith? Let's go on to Numbers 14 and see what happened next. So the Israelites, they had already committed two really big sins against God. And now what happens? Because they've doubted his word and they've spread discouragement among the people. But now they commit a third sin. They're actually going to defy God's will. Numbers 14 opens. It says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Oh my goodness. Their proposal to want to go back to Egypt is a rejection of God's entire salvation plan, entire redemption plan. It is, it is turning their backs against everything that God has done for them since the minute he allowed them to escape, to be free from Egypt. You know, when our eyes are on ourselves and our circumstances, we tend to lose perspective, don't we? And sometimes we do really ridiculous things. We get really twisted thinking. And that's exactly what's happened here. In fact, when we go to Deuteronomy 1 again, we find out the reason why the people are thinking this way. It's because they think now that God hates them and that he's brought them all this way just because he hates them. Verse 27 of Deuteronomy 1 says, Moses is writing and he says, And you murmured in your tents and you said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into this hand of the Amorites to destroy us. So they're grumbling in classic Israelite fashion, and here they're weeping at night, and they're bemoaning that they've come all this way, and they want another leader. They, they ha they're admitting they have lack of faith. They're blaming God for everything, and they say, we want another leader to lead us back to Egypt, and this is absolute willful defiance against God. 
You know, the truth is that the will of God will never lead us where the grace of God can't provide for us. We can trust in that. God will never lead us where his grace can't provide for us. Now, immediately, Moses and Aaron are hearing this, and they fall to their faces. I think they are just in reverent awe that God is going to do something absolutely horrible because of the blasphemy and the sacrilegious um, crying of these people. No doubt they're afraid that God's going to bring a big judgment. But then in that moment, Joshua and Caleb are the ones, the two faithful spies, who actually start tearing their clothes and they start to express deep distress and they plead. They plead with the people, please trust the Lord. They're saying, please allow him to lead us into this land. In Numbers 14, 8 and 9, it says, If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now, notice they're not saying, it's not, don't be scared, there's nothing to be scared of. Yes, there's things to be scared of. They're not disputing the fact that there is real cause to fear. Instead, they're exhorting the people to trust God because he is with them. And they understand that this nation is rebelling against God. Can you imagine what it was like? Two guys standing up to this whole nation, two to three million people who are all grumbling, who are all wailing, who are all saying, take us back to Egypt, plus the 10 other spies have come back with a very different report. Can you imagine what that was like for these two guys to stand and exhort the people to trust God? And yet, the people then decide they're going to stone them. They decide they're going to turn against them, and they decide they're going to stone Joshua and Caleb. And then, just as they did, the glory of the Lord appears. And in verse 11, it says, The Lord says to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. This is intense. This is the second time now that the Lord has declared to Moses that he was going to destroy all the Israelites and make a whole new nation out of Moses and his descendants. Now, the last time, if you remember, was in Exodus 32. It was after they they made the golden calf and they were worshiping the golden calf. And at that time, Moses interceded and beseeched God not to do that. And, um, And now, again, Moses actually ignores this proclamation from God, and he continues just to plead with God that he would continue on with his plan. And we see just here an amazing godly mark of leadership on Moses, because in this moment, he is more concerned about the people, the good of the people and the glory of God, than he is even about taking advantage of his own glory. We could have been reading about the descendants of Moses right now instead of the descendants of Abraham. But Moses truly is a humble leader who wants the best for God and the people. So now for the second time, he intercedes for the people. He's attempting to turn away God's wrath. And he argues on the basis of God's tarnished glory and his reputation among the pagan nations. He is most concerned that God be glorified before all the nations. Listen to verse 13. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. 
For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. Can you remember back to test how powerfully God established himself as the one true God in front of all the other nations? The deliverance out of Egypt, the miracles, the plagues, everything that God has been doing with his people has been to show himself to the whole world that he is the one true God. He has got power over every other little G God on the planet. He is God. And so Moses is concerned that that all the other nations will think that the one true God, he wants him to keep his promises, the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wants the people that he promised to go into the, the promised land just as he said they would. And so I love this part. He pleads with God on the basis of his own character. In verse 17, he says, Now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon this iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Do you recognize that? He's quoting back what God told him when he was in the cleft of the rock back in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when Moses said, God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And God said, I'll show you my glory, but I'm going to tuck you in this rock lest you see me and die. And as he passed by him, he told him in words exactly what his character was. And now Moses is remembering that and quoting it back to God and saying, God, let this glory, let this character of yours be evidence for everyone to see. Please fulfill your promises to your people the way that you originally intended. That's amazing. He's reminding God, you need to be slow to anger, remember? Abounding in love, forgiving in sin and rebellion. And he pleads with God to forgive the people just as he had done many times before. We see Moses here as an intercessor just the way Jesus intercedes for us. Moses is standing between God and the judgment that's due the people. And he's standing there and he's interceding. He's pleading on their behalf for mercy and for grace and for forgiveness just the way Jesus and the cross stands between us and the Father and provides forgiveness and mercy and grace to us. But the truth is that not believing God's promises is rebellion against God's character and his word. Not believing his promises is rebellion against God's character and his word. We're reading so much in his word about his character and we're reading so much about his promises. But let me ask you, do you really believe it? And if you do really believe it, how is it impacting the way that you take action in your life? How is it impacting your behavior? Because to not take action on what you believe is really unbelief. I mean, imagine that you're, you're put a bunch of cookies in the oven and you believe that that cookie sheet's going to be hot when you pull it out, right? And so you, what do you do? You put on a oven mitt because you believe you take action and then you pull the cookies out and you don't burn yourself. But then imagine that your teenager comes in and she wants to make cookies and you tell her it's hot. Remember to put the cookie, the mitt on before you take out the hot cookie sheet. And she looks at you and says, oh, I don't believe you. 
or yeah, whatever, you know how teenagers are. And she reaches in with her bare hand and grabs the cookie sheet, right? Now what? You're going to be mad. You're going to be, I told you, you were going to burn yourself. And now instead of eating cookies, you're at emergency, getting treatment for a burned hand. It's just the way rebellion is, right? When we rebel, I'll tell you what rebellion is. Rebellion is reserving the right for myself to make the final decision. It's reserving the right for myself to make the final decision, even though I've been told, informed, enlightened, that that is actually not the right decision to make. In what area of your life do you find yourself being rebellious? Rebellion can be, can be holding back from the Lord or reserving to do what you want to do despite God's clear guidance and wisdom that tells you otherwise. Rebellion is pursuing my own ideas not believing in God's promises, or being obstinate towards God. We've talked about shaking your fist at God. Isaiah 65, 2 says, All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. That's us. We're all obstinate people. Hopefully that changes as we come to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit works within us and starts to rub down the, the, the rough edges and softens our hearts and we learn over time to trust and to obey. But we don't like the word even obey. We don't even like that word. And God by his love calls us to trust and obey. It's his love. He doesn't want us to get burned. He doesn't want us to get hurt. Those who rebel against God's will, though, are defying his wisdom and questioning his love and tempting the Lord to discipline them. You know that if you have a teenager at home, right? Sounds like a rebellious teenager. So how might you be rebelling against God by not taking action on his promises? Or is there someone else that you know who's in that state of rebellion against God? How might you come alongside like Moses did and intercede for them? Pray for a divine miracle of a softened heart that they might see and believe and trust in the God that you trust in. Because not believing God's promises is rebellion against his character and his word. Well, lastly, there were repercussions for all of this. And thankfully, God is a compassionate and forgiving God, and he did forgive the Israelites for their rebellion. He listened to Moses' prayer. He agreed with Moses that he would not destroy them, but he did declare there would be consequences for their disobedience. He assures Moses that he's going to pardon their sin, but he's not going to prevent their sin from working out its terrible consequences. And so he, he crafts a punishment that actually fits the crime. Um, he said, they said, if you remember, that they would rather die in the wilderness than go back to Egypt they would rather die in the wilderness than face their fears by going into Canaan. And so basically God grants their request. Their judgment is going to be threefold. The first thing that's going to happen is they're going to be wandering now in the wilderness for 38 more years. So it's going to be 40 years altogether. That's one year for every day that the spies were in the promised land seeing the blessings that God had provided for them, had promised them. He says that during that time, every person over the age of 20, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, are going to perish. They're going to pass away. Um, now, we know that doesn't include the Levites. Uh, the Levites are not included in that. It's the 12 tribes. And he says, and instead, the children whom, who they thought, remember they said, if our children go into this land, they're going to be plunder for the people. Well, instead, actually, the children are going to get get to be the ones to inherit the land, and they're the ones who are going to get to enjoy the blessing, and yet the children are going to have to suffer with the parents for 40 years in the wilderness. So they're also going to have to suffer for the sins of their parents. 
And then the 10 unbelieving spies die immediately because of the evil report that they had made. God is so displeased with their rebellion and and the way in which it spread throughout all the people and created all of this dissension and discouragement. Only Joshua and Caleb are the two spies that survived to go into the land. And if you read the book of Joshua, you see how Joshua then took leadership of the people and actually was the one to claim the victory of the land. But we can see here what a serious thing it is to lead others into sin and rebellion. And Jesus talks about this in Luke 17. He says to his disciples, he says, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And so those ten spies who came back with a report of fear and and mistrust, um, they were severely judged instantaneously because they were the ones that were responsible for spreading this whole rebellion amongst the people. So the people, they hear this, and the first thing they do is they just mourn, right? But they're not repenting. They're mourning their punishment. They're mourning the consequence of their sin. And this is the part where I think, I just can't even believe this. They decide then the next day that they are going to go and take the land for themselves that God promised them. So again, they're refusing to obey God, and they thought, they thought, well, surely now if they show a little bit of remorse, if they say a little I'm sorry, that, that everything will be okay, and they can go and take the land just as God promised. So Moses, he tries to warn them. He says, why are you now transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies." For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you, you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. See, if you take unbelief plus a complaining spirit plus a rebellious attitude, you have a dangerous combination. And that's exactly what they had as they tried to go set foot in the land without God's, God's promise. In fact, Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So what do they do? They presume. They go up to the heights of the hill country. Although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who had lived in that country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So in their presumption, they decided they'd just fight the enemy their own way. they just do it their own way. But it was too late. Jesus tells us, without me... You can do nothing. And they could do nothing without God. And you know what? Sometimes it's too late for us as well. Sometimes when we rebel against God and we don't believe in his word, then one day an opportunity has closed. I think about people that I have known who've said, I want to live my life to the fullest. I want to do whatever I want to do. And if God is so gracious that on my deathbed I can say I believe and get into heaven, then I'm going to do that. I get the best of both worlds. I can live this life however I want, and I can be in the next life at the last minute. But then what happens? They get into a car accident, and they don't have that moment. They drop dead of a heart attack. They have a brain aneurysm. They never get that moment to, to, to receive the Lord. Or their hearts become so hardened by a lifetime of sin that they don't even want to when they get to the end of their life. Or there's other people who say they believe in God and they trust him as Savior, but, 
but their lives are too busy right now to serve him or to grow spiritually or to be in Bible study or to come to church. You know, they're like, yeah, I believe, but I'm not going to do all that stuff. That's not really important right now. So they, they may actually have salvation, but they live in sort of a desert wilderness their whole lives. They never enter in and occupy the blessings that God has for them through a changed life, through worship, through Bible study, through community, through faith. Is your life falling short of its fullest potential in some way because you're daring, you're not daring enough to trust God to lead you to the places that he's prepared for you? Do you think that sometimes, and we, I think we all do, I'm not I'm saying we're all in this, do you think sometimes that we think we can do things better if we do them in our own way than God's way? That's rebellion. When we think, when God's revealed to us his truth and we think we can do it better our own way, it's rebellion. And the truth is that God's greatest judgment is to let people have their own way. God's greatest judgment is to let people have their own way. When I look back over my own life, the very best things in my life have come from obedience. And the very worst things in my life have come from rebellion. There's not one area of my life where I rebelled against God and I said, that worked out better. In every case, if I look back over my life and I think about all the places that I really regret, it's in those times of rebellion. If I think of all the places where I was blown away by God's grace, it's in the times of obedience. He, he, even, even in the hard things, even in the desert wanderings, even those are used to so deepen and strengthen our character and prepare us to know how faithful and trustworthy God is. But there are real consequences to sin. And the Israelites, they whined. They said they wanted to die in the wilderness. They complained that their children would die in Canaan. And so God's judgment for their unbelief is that they would die in the wilderness and their children would live in Canaan. Think about your life for a moment. In what area of your life are you rebelling and trying to push ahead without God? Where God hasn't said go yet. He said wait. Rebellion can be both. It can be pushing ahead before he says go and it can be holding back when he says step into it. I've got this for you. God is calling each one of us to, to a place of greater blessing. And the truth is, yes, we're grasshoppers. That's just the reality of it. And there are great obstacles in our lives, and there are really scary things that we have to navigate each day. But when it's you and me plus God, there's victory. Because um, he is the one who enables us to go to the places that he calls us. This entire lesson is just one of my most favorite lessons in the life of Moses because it just teaches us once again that there's no substitute for faith in God's promises. There's no substitute, and we must respond in faith and obedience to his commands, to his revealed word. Faith is simply, it's just simply obeying God. And it's obeying him in spite of how we feel. It's obeying him in spite of what we see. It's obeying him in spite of what we think might happen. It's just obeying him. No matter what kind of frightening situations that we're facing, it's realizing that each situation is an opportunity to trust God in such a way that we are then able to experience his power and his faithfulness. And the cool thing about walking with God for a number of years is that you begin to look back and each of those scary, frightening places just become milestones in your walk of how faithful and how trustworthy God is. So would you stand? Let's pray about this. Father, we... 
We look at the Israelites and we shake our heads and we think, oh Lord, how could they be so faithless? How could they be so scared? How could they be so self-centered? How could they believe the lies of the spies? Lord, we look at it all and we shake our heads and we think, how dare they think they could enter into the promised land without your presence? But yet, Lord, we are so like them. For each one of us, there are places where we are afraid to say yes to you. There are strongholds like Egypt's in our life where we still want to go back and find comfort. There are places, Lord, where we don't completely trust you. And so I thank you for such a vivid illustration of how mighty you are. You are the victor. You are God above all. You have an incredible plan for each one of us. You have called each one of us into a personal, intimate relationship with yourself. We praise and thank you that we can trust you in all the places. Maybe it's any one of the things we've talked about today, but Lord, I think for each one of us, there's a there's a giant in the inner land, and we realize how powerless we are to evoke change. And so I pray that we would have courage, not in of ourselves, but in the, the courage that we find in Christ, that he is with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that, that nothing is possible without him, but everything is possible with him. I pray, Lord, that you would bolster our courage to say yes to you, no matter what we see with our eyes, because we want to see with eyes of faith, and we want to believe. And so help us, Lord, to believe, and help us in our unbelief. We ask this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.